0: Good morning everyone. It's good to uh, be back with you again after a few weeks away and uh, we certainly have missed everyone here and uh, but uh, it's always uh, we've had a wonderful refreshing uh, holiday and a great time traveling around seeing some of our beautiful countryside and uh, just be reminded again of uh, you know God's wonderful creation here in this land. Isn't Australia a beautiful country? Yes? We've got to live in probably the best best country in the world, hey? Yeah. Yeah? All right. Well, um just a, uh, just want to say thanks to Dale and all the people who have uh, held the fort while we've been away. It's been, uh, probably a little bit dawning for Dale to we sort of, you know, dropped in the deep end, you know, sort of only been here for a, a few weeks and all of a sudden everyone goes on holidays and he's left to it. But, uh, we're grateful that, uh, that God has, uh, given him all that he needs in order to continue to, uh, to serve you well here. And, uh, we thank, uh, we certainly thank you for that. One of the things which I just want to uh, draw to your attention, which came to my attention while we were on holidays, is uh, this uh, morning tea on the 1st of uh, November. Please, it's not a celebration of uh, myself and my family. It is a celebration of God's goodness to us who has enabled us to have 10 years of ministry here at North Pine. God gets the glory. Okay? So uh, we want to celebrate that, certainly. We want to give thanks to God for that and, uh, you know, to recognize that, uh, you know, yep. It is wonderful to be able to, uh, to to be able to minister in a place for a uh, for a long period of time, and we have seen you know some wonderful things that God has done through that time, and we continue to look forward to what God is going to do in the future as well. Let's pray as we look to this uh, look to this passage this morning. Father, we pray that you will indeed be our teacher this morning by your Spirit, that our hearts would be open to the things that you might have to say to us as uh, individuals. Lord, may uh, Your Spirit truly impress upon our hearts today these words from uh, from Your Word, the Living Word, a Word that speaks to us in all situations in life, a Word that uh, that brings about life when we look when we follow it, and we uh, we see the uh, the fulfilment of it all in Jesus Christ. So we commit this time to You now and ask, Lord, for a great time of Your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things as I'm reading through this uh, chapter 4 of James, one of the, uh, the verses that r- really stands out to me is verse 4. And I know we're not looking at verse 4 today, we're looking at verses 7 to 10, but I think verse 4 kind of sets a bit of the context for what we're going to be looking at. James writes, Do you not know, in other words, you should know this, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he goes on to say again that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Hmm, Enemy of God. Friendship with the world results in us being enemies with God, in opposition to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want God as my enemy, would you? No. Within each and every single one of us there is this innate desire, this, this overwhelming urge if you like to, to chase after our own glory, to chase after our own glory, and something which the world around us very much encourages and fosters through all kinds of mediums today. Really, you know, trying to continue to encourage us to seek after those things that will, that will make us look good in others' eyes. We want that exalted position, don't we? We seek to, to be people who are recognised. We want to be people who feel important. We want to feel significant. We want others to be, to, to be impressed about us because it strokes our egos. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And so because of that, we covet and we desire, as James begins to write in chapter 4 here. Paul Tripp in his book uh, um, entitled Sex and Money refers to it as this glory war that goes on. A, uh, a, A constant war or battle, if you like, between our glory and God's glory. And believe me, we are the only um, inhabitants of this planet who struggle with this whole thing. Animals don't have a glory war. As Paul Trip writes, as was speaking about this particular thing, he says, you know, penguins, you know, don't uh, give each other a score when they dive off the ice into the water and say, oh yes, nine point five for, uh, you know, for height uh, or whatever, and you know, but not really good on the artistic creativity, you know, that, that sort of thing. Rhinos don't say to, uh, to zebras, "Wow, look at that coat! I just love your stripes." We are the only people who struggle with this glory, this battle of glory between our glory and God's glory. The world holds out that if we go after the things that it values, that it holds up as, as being worthwhile and significant, then we will, we will you know, experience this glory. We will be happy. Now, yeah, sure, these things might satisfy for, for a time. But eventually they lose their attraction and we just then want more and we want better. James says that when we have this friendship with the world and the things of this world, we seek after our own glory, then it puts us in opposition to God. Why is that fact? Why does it put us in opposition to God? It puts us in opposition to God because when we go after these created things, we rob God of his glory. We worship the created things instead of the creator. Right? Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. But if you go back to Exodus and to the Ten Commandments, we see that the first two commandments point out that God alone deserves all glory and honour and worship. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols and you shall not bow down to them. Because God alone is worthy of His glory. In fact, it says that the, the Bible speaks about the fact that God is jealous for His glory. Uh, Brianna and I have a, bit, have, have a bit of a conversation about this whole jealousy of God this week. She's been doing a, an assignment for, uh, for Christian studies at school. And what does it mean that God is jealous? Because we, you know, jealousy for us is, 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 is something which we see as being bad or wrong. But God's jealousy is, is for an is an intense zeal if you like for what is right and what is true. God's intense zeal for his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness. See that is God is is, is these things you know in complete and utter perfection. And therefore, if God is is, is, is the, you know is is these things all summed up, if you like, in, in within Himself, within His character, then then surely He you know he is going to be jealous for these things. James alludes to God's jealousy in verse five of of of, of James four when he says. He, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. What James, I think, is saying here is that the new life that God has given us, this, this supernatural, abundant, eternal life that that God that has come through the, the, the indwelling of God's spirit within us, the, the spirit that God has placed within us, God is jealous for that. He is jealous for our well-being because we are his children. But our well-being doesn't, doesn't result in, in the things, in following the things which, which take the glory away from God. But our well-being exists in, in giving God His rightful place in this world and in our lives. The well-being is centred in being anchored to God and following his ways. You know, when, uh, when Moses and the people of Israel were, uh, were camped on the, uh, the plains of Moab, before they were to go in and enter the Promised Land, Moses gave a, gave a series of sermons. We, we have it recorded in the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy in our Bibles. And uh, towards the end of, uh, of that book, there is uh, these what's called the blessings and the cursings chapters, chapter 27, 28 and 29 of, of, of Deuteronomy. And God said when you go into the land I want a group of people to stand on Mount Gerizim and a, and a group of, of, of people to stand, stand on Mount Ebal and, uh, and the people on Mount Gerizim are to announce to the people all of the, all of the blessings which will come from following God and those on Mount Ebal are to, to, uh, to, to declare to the people all the cursings that will come if they don't follow God. And in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says this. He says to the people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days. Our blessing is anchored completely to God and God having that rightful place in our lives. That God having the glory and not us. Jesus spoke about it in his Sermon on the Mount. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this parable of the the wise and the foolish builders. You might recall it. There's songs and all sorts of things been, uh, been sung about that. But Jesus says... That you know that, that those people the person who 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 trusts in these words the person who puts Jesus' words into action in their lives who obey them it will be that person who will stand in God's final judgment. Our well being, our blessing is anchored firmly and securely to the position that God has in our lives. That he is the one who gets the glory and not us. And in the verses that we have before us today in James, what he does is he makes clear the way to avoid becoming this enemy with God. Of resisting of becoming worldly in our thinking and our behaviour, of making sure that we instead are people who dwell in the grace and the mercy of God in our lives. And what he does is he gives ten commands in these in these four verses. He gives them in very quick succession. Things which he expects his his readers, his listeners, to do immediately without any hesitation. There's commands that just sort of come one after the other. But, but the emphasis is that James expects his readers, his listeners, to act on these immediately. To not give them a second thought, but just to do them. And what we're going to do this morning is I want to deal with them under three headings this morning, rather than sort of deal with them each individually, otherwise we could be here until who knows, who knows when. All right. Um, it's interesting that uh that uh, some of the great preachers have, have dealt with this passage probably over three or four sermons. I'm going to do it in one today. So that gives you a bit of an idea of what uh what we're sort of trying to get through. All right. So three headings. The the headings are our attitude towards God, our attitude towards the devil and subsequently to the world, and our attitude to ourselves. All right. These are the way we this is the way we're going to deal with it. So let's begin. Our attitude towards God. James says in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit. And, folks, here is the foundation. The foundation for the remainder of the imperatives that James will continue to make in these passages. We're not going to be able to do the rest of these things that James says without, first of all, submitting ourselves to God. James says that in the light of all the behaviours he's just mentioned, those behaviours which, which start in verse chapter 3, verse 13 and go right the way through to chapter 4, verse 5, he says, in light of, of these behaviours that I've just mentioned, in light of, of all the ramifications of those behaviours, here is the remedy or the solution. Here, in, in other words, is what to do. Firstly, submit yourself to God. Now, this is a military image. It's the image of a person who places themselves under the authority of another who is willing to submit to that authority, the authority of that person. Like the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the soldiers and they, they do the drill and you've got the person out the front who barks the orders and when they, when they yell out the order, the, person, the people in the, uh, in the ranks, they do exactly as they're told you know, immediately. That's the kind of picture that James is talking about here. The person who puts themselves under the authority and who obeys. But we all know, don't we, that we can put ourselves under the authority and obey someone, but our hearts just aren't in it, right? Yes, we can do it grudgingly. But that's not what James is talking about here. He's saying, no, this person actually submits willfully and gladly. Willfully and gladly to the authority. It's a giving over of our rights and our wills instead to do that which God wills. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, there as he he prays to the Father, knowing what lays before him, the cross and and all that that entails, pleads to the Father, "If, if it at all possible, take this cup from me. Here in this we see the humanity of our Saviour Jesus who, who knows the agony that he's just about to go through. And he says, if there's any way possible, Father, please take this cup from me. And he says, yet not my will but your will be done. So no matter, Father, what it costs me, I will do what you desire. I will carry out your will. It's the same thing that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, not mine, not anybody else's, but your will be done. I mean, let's face it, folks, generally, we, we don't like to submit, do we? There's that kind of rebellious kind of thing within each of our hearts where we struggle with submission, because we see submission as a sign of weakness. We see submission as an as an imposition on our freedoms and on our personal autonomy. Yet, but we see here that if we are to have a right relationship with God, it can only, can only be had on the basis of of our willful and glad submission to God and his ways. it is Our submission is a recognition in our hearts and by our actions that God's way is right. That God determines what is true and right and good. And, 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 and he sets apart what is good and bad in this world. What is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is evil. God is the determining factor. And no one else. And it's each and every one of us submitting to that particular point in our lives and saying, You know what, God? You are right. You and you alone." Well, James goes on and says, not only are we to submit, but we are also, in verse 8, we are to draw near to God. Now, what does the term draw near imply? It implies that there's a distance that exists, doesn't there? If we are to draw near to something, it means that we are away from something. And of course, it is our ungodliness and our worldliness that places us in that position of being away or far away from God. And God, James says we had to draw near. Thankfully, God gives us the grace to do that. We see that in verse six of James four. It says, but God gives more grace. In fact, all of these things that we're looking at today are re- direct results of the grace of God towards us. Every single one of them are direct um, channels, if you like, of God's grace towards us. Being able to submit, being able to draw near. The grace that God gives us with which to overcome these influences in order to be able to draw near to him comes from God. We'd like to think that, you know, when it comes to, you know, our salvation, our relationship with God, that, you know, there's a fair bit that, that we can give ourselves credit for. But the Bible's very clear on this. It says that none of us can give ourselves any credit whatsoever for our movement towards God. God himself instigated it. Jesus says in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one comes to the Father except that he himself draws them to himself. It is only because of Christ's atoning work through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, and now with his intercession there before the Father in heaven, that we ourselves can draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22 says this. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a f- true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The writer of Hebrews there says that this, this, this um, ability to be able to draw near to God only comes because of what Jesus Christ has done for us already on the cross. Now this drawing near is not something that happens also as a single or isolated event in our lives. Although there may be a place, a point in our lives where we can, we can pinpoint that place where we were able to uh, recognize our sin and come and ask Jesus for forgiveness and put our faith and trust in Him. We are to continually live in a position of drawing near to God on a, on a continual and habitual basis in our lives. And that's what James is, is saying here. We, we've got to do this all the time. We've got to do it, you know, constantly, habitually in our lives. We've got to choose to live near God in our lives. We have to choose to live near Him. And we do that through, uh, you know, through, through regular and, and disciplined Bible reading and prayer and public and private worship. That's how we draw near to God. Now, as people today, we sometimes kind of get put this around the reverse way. And we think, well, when we feel as though God is near to us, you know, when we've got that, that, that kind of emotional kind of connection that we feel God is near to us, well, then, yeah, then I'll respond to God. Don't we do that from time to time in our lives? We wait to feel that connection with God before we then respond to God. But that's not the way it's meant to be. God says, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Now, immediately, um, uh, uh, um, God has already done the drawing near in Christ. We've just spoken about that. But God says each day there needs to be a conscious decision on all of our parts to want to draw near to God and to live in his presence day by day in all of our lives. James also says that not only are we to submit, to draw near, but we are also to humble ourselves. We see that in verse 10 of our passage this morning. We are to humble ourselves before God. I think a better rendering of this verse would be that we should allow ourselves to be humbled by God. As God, through His Holy Spirit, as He reveals to us our complete unworthiness because of our sin, our our, our unworthiness, you know, with our sin compared to His majesty and His glory, we are meant to respond with a bowing down to God. A bowing down in our hearts before Him, a being made low. The prophet Isaiah, when he was confronted with the majesty and the glory of God, He's, he, he cried out, Woe is me! I am undone! For I am a man of unclean lips. Peter, out there on the boat, you know, he's, he and his mates have been out there fishing all night and Jesus comes to them. And Jesus says, you know, row out into deeper water and, and let your nets down on, 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 this, on this side of the boat. And Peter says, Lord, we've been fishing all night. Now's not the time to catch fish. It's completely the wrong time for that. Jesus says, let down your nets. They let down the nets and then all of a sudden the nets are so full that they start to break and they need more boats to help pull this miraculous catch of fish in. And Peter confronted by that sees in this miracle the majesty and the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And he says to him, Lord, depart from me for I am a sinner. Depart from me, I am a sinner. He's confronted by his unworthiness in the presence of God. See, the more closely, the more clearly a person sees God in all his holiness and glory, the more we begin to see our true selves stained by sin. Job chapter 42, verses 5 to 6, Job says this. I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you and I repent in dust and ashes. That is the rightful response to a holy God. God says there's a promise attached to this, that as we are humbled, that it will be God that will exalt us. We don't need to exalt ourselves, folks. God promises that if we give Him that rightful place in our lives, that He will do the exalting for us. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That God Himself will be lifted up. I don't know about you, but you know when it comes to comparing, ah, oh, me lift myself up or God lift me up, which is better? Hey, God by a long by a long way, right? Yes. This is a, this foundational biblical principle at play here, folks. The way to true greatness, the way to true recognition, the way to true exaltation is through humility. Is first humbling ourselves before God and allowing Him to lift us up. Well, we've spent a fair bit of time on that. Let's keep going because we next want to talk about our attitude towards the devil and subsequently to the world. Why is worldliness such a destructive thing? We ask. Because behind this world, behind all of the philosophies and all of the the thinking and the wisdom and the things of this world, lies the devil. The Bible refers to him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the ruler of this present world. And like soldiers in battle, we are called to take a stand against this enemy. We are called to take a stand to actively resist his attempts to lure us by his wily schemes and his deceitful lies and trickery that he employs with the things of this world today. Peter, in uh, the the letter that uh, that follows James, says that uh, we are to be alert because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Therefore, we need to resist him. To oppose him and his ways, both in our attitudes and in our actions, we're to stop aligning ourselves with the devil through following the ways of this world. James is calling here for a deliberate, uh, a, a deliberate emphasis, a deliberate action towards opposing. To doing battle with the devil in our lives. And, 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 and we, we learn how to do this through passages like Ephesians 6 where Paul talks about putting on the whole armour of God. Being reminded first and foremost of, of what we have in Jesus Christ. And some of those elements of the, of the armour of God are meant as, as defensive weapons. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt of truth. But some of, those weapons, some of, those, some of that armour are used as offensive weapons. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is how we are to, to take our stand and battle against the devil. Through the word of God and through prayer. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4, each time he counted the devil with the word of God. And with prayer, we need to keep in mind that the devil, though, is a defeated adversary. We need to remember that that the one we're fighting against has already been defeated. We know we read that in Colossians chapter two, verse fifteen, and Hebrews chapter two, verse fourteen. I'm not going to turn to those now. That the the devil does not have the same power as God. It's surprising the number of believers that I come across today who think that God and the devil are equal in power. The devil is a created being and is nowhere in any way compared to the power and the majesty and the glory of God. The devil is our accuser before God, but we have an advocate before God, Christ Jesus, our Saviour. We need to remember that day by day. That when the devil comes to us and starts accusing us of all these things in our lives, we can say to him, you know what? I have Jesus as my advocate. He is the one who's paid for my sin. And he is the one who guarantees my place before the Father free of condemnation. And again, accompanied with this command is another promise. If we do resist the devil, then he will flee from us. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James writes in verse 7 there. Now can I say that that may not happen immediately. The the devil is a persistent soul. But as we continue to resist, we can be guaranteed that there will come a point where he will indeed flee from us. Just as he fleed from Jesus there in the temptation of the wilderness. But remember that the the, the Bible tells us there that he left Jesus and waited for another opportune time. And so we need to continually be on our guard in our lives and continue to resist the devil. Well, our third point is our attitude towards ourselves. Verses 8 and 9 of our passage this morning. In these verses we find the elements that lead us to the humility that we spoke of earlier. James calls his readers to firstly cleanse their hands. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now our hands refer to our deeds or our actions, those things that we do in carrying out our sin. (coughs) Folks, we are stained by sin. Our sin makes us filthy before God. Even our most righteous acts, God says, are like filthy rags. So there is nothing that we can do in order to secure God's favour apart from the way that God has purposed in Jesus Christ and that is through faith and trust in him. We need to be made clean. We cannot do it as for ourselves. Someone has to do it for us and that person is Jesus. So when it says cleanse your hands, you sinners, it means to submit to come before Jesus Christ and ask for his cleansing in our lives. He goes on to say that not only that, we had to purify our hearts, our attitudes and our motivations that result in these actions. God says, you know, you need to get to the, to the nitty gritty of these things. You need to get to the, to the, to the, to the root of this sin in your life and that is in our hearts. We need to have our minds and our hearts transformed by the light and the truth of God and His Word. Psalm 51 and verse 6 says, Behold, you, that is God, delight in truth in the inner being. And again, it, has got, it's, it needs to be something which God does for us, not something we can do for ourselves. We need to dedicate ourselves to godliness, to a single-minded devotion, and not to be double-minded, as James says here. In other words, to have these divided affections. The word is actually to literally be two-souled. Sold as in you know the the soul, body soul mind and spirit soul mind and spirit you know what I'm talking about because really we are that's exactly what we are we we've got these with these affections that we vying for these passions and desires in ourselves and we need to say no to those reject those and instead to say yes to God in our lives day by day. James goes on to say we are to be wretched and mourn and we, that word wretched means miserable. Now that doesn't mean we need to go around with these somber looking faces, you know, these somber looking faces all the time, you know, dejected and, and, you know, disheartened and that sort of thing. I sometimes think some Christians have sort of taken this verse to live by in their lives each, you know. That's not what James is saying at all. What James is saying is that, you know, we need to have the right response to our spiritual condition. Paul, writing in Romans 7, speaks of the spiritual battle that we face in our lives. And he says that the, that the things, the sin that he doesn't want to do, this he keeps on doing. And the, and the good things he wants to do, those things he doesn't do. And he cries out in frustration, who will save me from this body of death, this body of sin? Who will save me? And then he goes on to say, Pray. thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. It's having the response of the man in Luke 18. You know, the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector come before God and the Pharisee says, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person, I'm not like this person. I'm pretty good, you know, when it comes to it. And yet the other fellow says to God, he comes before him and he says, God, he doesn't even look up to heaven, he just bows and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says only one person out of those two went away justified that day. And it wasn't the Pharisee. It wasn't the religious person. John MacArthur says in his commentary on this passage, the term mourn that is used here is the strongest term used for sorrow. It represents the deepest and most heartfelt grief, similar to the grief that we have over the death of someone close to us. I wonder, have you ever, have you ever grieved over your sin like that before? Truly, honestly, have you ever grieved over your sin in that context before? Because that is the attitude we need to have. James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not, again not you know bagging out laughter and joy there because laughter and joy are in fact come from God. But what he's referring to here is the laughter and the joy that, that, that come from a reveling in the sinful and worldly pleasures and giving in to those passions and desires in our hearts that are contrary to the way that which God intends for us. That's what he's talking about. He says, put aside that sort of stuff. Be, be in mourning and, and be in gloom over those things in your life. When we come to that point in our lives, when we, when we truly grieve over our sin like that, then that in itself will lead us to confess and repent and humble ourselves before God. Well what we've seen this morning is this we've seen what it means in the way in which a person can be truly can truly know peace and fulfillment in their lives can truly know the life of blessing that's what we've discovered this morning and it doesn't come in following after the things of this world and all of the things that it promises It doesn't come in building ourselves up and lifting ourselves up and making ourselves look good. It comes in a submission to God, a drawing near to God, a humbling ourselves before God, a resisting the devil, and in a proper and, and right understanding of our sin and the horror of it in our lives. Folks, this is what James points out as being, again, those characteristics of the mature follower of Jesus, the person who demonstrates a pure and true, genuine, saving faith. It's this person and, and, how, and responding in the ways that James has laid out here for us. How can we truly be a friend of God? Only through a proper attitude towards him and the things that he sets out in his word. That's how we become a friend of God. Submitting to him. Saying, God, you are the one who's right. Not me. Not anyone else. You. So this morning, will we again commit our hearts and our lives to God and saying, God, help us to be people who submit. Submit completely and utterly and totally to you in all of life in all of life's challenges, in all of life's trials, in all of life's temptations, will we submit instead our will to his. Let's pray. Father, we want to come before you this morning and confess indeed our sin before you. Lord, we are indeed people who are proud. We are indeed people who... Lord, although we sometimes hate to admit it, are worldly. We are people who are self-centred. Lord, we are people who fight and quarrel. And that fighting and quarrelling comes from those passions and desires that are within us because of the things that we covet, thinking that they will indeed bring us blessing and exaltation in this world. And yet, Lord, we know from reading your word this morning that that is completely inaccurate, completely false. That, Lord, that our only hope, our only way of being called your friend is to come and humbly submit to you. Lord, would you help us to do that today and always? Would you help us indeed, Lord, to stand firm against the devil, to resist him and to rightly mourn over our sin, and instead find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Father, we want to praise you this morning for your wonderful grace, for that grace that you have so richly poured out on us, that grace, Lord, that helps us to be conscious of our sin and that helps us to live lives honouring to you. Lord, help us to do this for your name and for your glory and for our our well-being. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing a uh, last uh, song this morning, another wonderful hymn, which is a hymn of, of commitment, of dedication, of asking the Lord to take our lives.